kudos to the Weather Channel. They did a really good yeah. job, generally speaking, especially when they had their um, their scientists, you know, their really smart guys, explaining what the hurricane was doing, where it was, what it was going, where it was going to go. I mean, th th that in fact, I learned something watching this hurricane. The Weather Channel is now the most trusted source in the United States for information. Can you believe that? I mean, we've gone from, you know, newspapers to Walter Cronkite to cable news. And now all of those are a joke to most Americans. The only thing they trust is the Weather Channel. They don't trust CNN anymore. CNN used to be the most trusted, right? Yeah. Not even close yeah. anymore. Not even close. Hey, so glad you're there. This is uh, this is where we talk about Latino truths and one, one of the interesting things that's been uh, going on lately that I'm really excited about. Well, we've been talking about how our numbers are exploding. We're like growing at 600% run rate month to month, which is what the hell, <laughs> right? But there's something else that's going on where a lot of folks are reaching out to us and saying, hey, can we uh, can we use your, um, your content, your stuff, right? And I just want you to know something. Yes is the answer to everyone. I don't care if it's China, Iran, um, the old Soviet Union, you know, Russia. I don't care if it's uh, the right, the left. Yes. You know, one of the biggest problems we have right now in this country is we are so siloed. You know what I mean by a silo? Like you live in a silo. The people who live in that silo where you live, perhaps only think and know and see and meet other people that think and know one way. And there's another group of people in the United States who only think and know and meet and see one way. And the people in column A or silo A have no idea what the people in silo B are even seeing or talking about because they never communicate with each other. And this is what we do with our politics right now. And this is how we run our foreign policy, where every day we're told that apparently Putin is Hitler. You know, Putin's a son of a bitch, but he's not Hitler, okay? And same with Xi Jinping. And same with so many other things. And look, look, I could go on and on about this, but here's what I'm saying. Recently, people have reached out to us and said, you have an interesting viewpoint. We didn't know there was such a thing as a Latino viewpoint in the United States. And yes, yes, the Latino viewpoint is different than the left or the right or the this or the that or the corporate media. And uh, and and we would like to know if you'd be able to share that viewpoint here or there or everywhere. And yeah, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of uh, of calls about things like that. And, you know, my answer is yes. You know, I'm getting calls from, uh, you know, an opportunity. We're going to be on TYT. You know, we're going to be on a more um, right wing or at least. I don't know. Let's not say left wing, right wing. Let's just say conservative are calling us because they want to hear what we have to say. Um, lefties are calling us because they want to hear what uh, we have to say, you know. So wherever it is, bring them on. We want to talk. We want to share Latino truths with the world. We want to share Latino truths with all sides, all comers, as they say. So let's talk. Uh, as you guys probably know, we shoot this show or much of the show out of... Uh, the part of the country that was just hit by a really, really bad hurricane. And I didn't want to talk about the hurricane while it was coming because, you know, Jerry told me the other day, he said, you know, just in case, because I've been watching the coverage and there's a lot that I've been wanting to say. But but Jerry, and you all know Jerry, he's uh, the, my producer, said to me the other day, you know, I don't think you should talk about it in case. And I said, well, in case what? Well, in case something horrible happens and then you were sitting here talking about the coverage and suddenly the coverage doesn't matter because what happened was much worse. And that's what you should be talking about. He's right. So so I, I held off talking about the coverage as I was watching some of it. Some of it was good, by the way. Some of it was really good and some of it sucked. Some of it sucked. But bottom line is, look, as you probably know, I've been covering hurricanes my whole life. I covered hurricanes at the local level and I was even given the distinguishing, uh, the, the most distinguished award. I, I was uh, Associated Press Reporter of the Year. And uh, George Bush, who was president at the time, the smart one, not the son, uh, gave me, uh, remember he used to do this thing called the Thousand Points of Light. 
And I was one of the thousand points of light that year for my coverage of uh, Hurricane Andrew because we uh, I started a relief effort and we moved like 60,000 tons of supplies at a time when it was very needed. And since then, you know, I, I covered Katrina and that's how I am part of the Peabody award winning team that covered Katrina for CNN. So my whole life has been covering hurricanes. So I know hurricanes and I saw a monster brewing in this thing. And I was telling everybody, this is a monster. It's going to it's going to go into the Gulf of Mexico. It's going to pick up a lot of strength and, and it looks like it wants to hit the West Coast of Florida. I don't know if it's going to be in Naples, you know, Marco Island, Fort Myers, Tampa, Pensacola, but somewhere they're going to get hit and they're going to get hit hard. And the longer it sits out there, the stronger the storm's going to be. Well, son of a gun, man. This thing's a category four. It's been a monster. You guys have seen some of it, some of the coverage. And, you know, if you grew up in South Florida or you've been to South Florida and you've spent time on the West Coast of Florida, there's one place in particular that everybody goes to because it's kind of like the most romantic part of South Florida. It's where you go when you want to be with somebody kind of special, kind of hideaway. I remember when I was young, I went there with uh, people. <laughs> my wife's listening to my podcast, so. Um, and it's called Sanibel and Captiva. You guys ever heard of this place? It's called Sanibel and Captiva. It's really cool. It's like this little finger that stretches out into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, just between Tampa and like Fort Myers and Naples area. And it's gorgeous and rustic, old, like the hotels are kind of, there's no new stuff. It's just beaches and, but it's really cool. Well, they took a direct hit. <laughs> it was, it's, there's only one way to get in there, obviously, right? Because it's like a finger that goes out into the Gulf of Mexico. So there's like one bridge and it's an old crappy bridge and you have to pay to be on that bridge, by the way. And uh, I just wanted to tell you that uh, that bridge, uh, she's gone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, bridge. No more bridge. No more Captiva. No, there's no way to get there now unless you go by boat. So literally, this, this storm is so big, so strong, so powerful that it has changed the geography of Florida. Islands that were there are no longer there. And places where there were shallows and shoals are now islands. Isn't that weird? Here's some of the coverage when uh, light came up and all of a sudden we realized that uh, it's now a bridge to nowhere because there is nowhere. <laughs> Actually, here it is. The bridge that connects Fort Myers as you travel over towards Sanibel, Captiva, washed out and destroyed by the strength of the Category 4 storm that hit on Wednesday. Isn't that amazing? I mean, people who've actually spent time there are sitting there going, wow. You know, Scotty, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you were watching the, you know, by the way, something happens when you watch this hurricane coverage. When it's the real deal, not when it's a faker, but when it's a real deal. I don't know what it is, but it, 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 it creates some level of anxiety. And at the same time, because it wasn't coming here. It was not coming to where we are in South Florida right now, the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. The storm had nothing the hell to do with us. Nothing. That would be like saying, those of you who are listening to us in Los Angeles, that something happened in uh, Sacramento. Okay. Or those of you listening to us in Texas, like something happened in San Antonio and, and you're watching it from Dallas and you're, you're, it has nothing to do with you, right? The, 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 our states are big. There's a lot of distance here. But somehow there was something about this coverage that was almost addictive. I couldn't turn it off. My, my, my usual viewing habits changed and I kept going back to the Weather Channel and back to the Weather Channel. I wanted to know if it moved. I wanted to know if it grew. What, what is it about? Did you feel the same thing? Yeah. You, you know, you said that to me, man. And I, I've, I, I never really kind of put words to that feeling before, but it's the same feeling I used to get when I was younger. And I thought it was just because like, oh, we're going to be out of school. But now that I'm older, I still get that excitement feeling like you kind of wanted to hit. So you're part of it, but at the same time as a homeowner, you're like, God, please don't hit hard here. But yeah, I was glued to the television. And, uh, you know, even, even last night where we were getting gusts of 50 miles per hour, I was sitting outside and just, I was just enjoying it. Just enjoying it. I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, no, yeah. You can enjoy it here because we weren't there. But, but it yeah, was but I, it, but yeah, the anxiety, it's like an anxiety. It's an excitement. It's almost like, you know, yeah. <sighs> It's like you're watching I, I a football game in the fourth quarter or a basketball game, you know, and yeah, you want to see. That's what, exactly you, what it you is. Don't know, you know what it is. There are very few things left for us in this life. 
where we get to watch things that we don't know the ending to. Very yeah. few things. It used to be that everything was like that. Today, everything is pre-programmed. I mean, we watch Netflix. The stuff we watch was done two years ago. Occasionally, yeah. we get to watch a sporting event, you know, or a big news story like this that we don't yeah. know the ending to. So we're really got drawn into this thing. And yeah. uh, and we had a feeling this thing was going to be deadly, and apparently it's going to be deadly. We don't know what the actual numbers are, but here's a sheriff of Lee County. So while I don't have confirmed numbers, I definitely know the fatalities are, are in the hundreds. Um, there are thousands of people that are waiting to be rescued, and we can't access people. That's the problem. When I hear that, it sends shivers through my spine. I've said this to you before. You know, I remember when I came back from covering Hurricane Katrina, and I was the very first reporter to announce that the levees had busted, and CNN put me on a plane, and I was one of the first reporters to get down and covered Hurricane Katrina. In fact, we did a podcast on what a piece of crap CNN did by pulling most of its reporters out of there and treating the victims of Hurricane Katrina like they were um, criminals. They called them criminals. They called them criminals. And they were just desperate people who were hungry. And we did a podcast on that. But I, I remember talking in that, and this is interesting, that um, it was so hard for me to take my reporter hat off and put my rescuer hat on because I heard children's voices in attics. I heard children screaming, you know, come help me. I'm up here. And it was the middle of the night and the waters were rising and they were stuck in those attics and they were just kids. And I remember we were we, we could only get so many of them out and they jumped down. They tried to make a hole in the attic, but they couldn't. So they had to swim through their home because the only way to get to the attic is inside the house. But the water level had risen to the top, the, just the very mouth of the attic. So they're trapped up there and they're trying to get out. And they have to swim from their attic through the hole, through their front door to get to our boat so we could get them out. And a lot of them didn't know how to swim. So a lot of them drowned and it was tough. And then there were those who kept screaming and we couldn't get them out because we had to leave because we already had too many people on the boat. And we were concerned that you know, what good does it do you for the boat to collapse or capsize? And then everybody goes overboard and now you've got a bigger problem. So the, the whole thing. But I remember, because we know how high the waters rose in uh, Katrina in uh, New Orleans, in the French Quarter and in Kenner, where I was at the time. And I just realized in that moment what it was like to be in a real flood situation where people die as a result of a hurricane. And, and when I heard these guys say this, and when I watched the pictures yesterday of those waters rising, I thought to myself, there are people who are going to drown in this thing. And I, and I, and I hope he's wrong. Uh, you know, and by the way, it, it happens that people are wrong. Usually hurricanes do not kill a lot of people. Hurricanes today are not as deadly as they used to be. I know Katrina was different. Andrew was one of the most powerful storms in the history of the United States and one of the most destructive. I think one or two people died because the great thing about hurricanes is they are accumulative. It's an inch at a time. It's not like you get a big giant tidal wave. Katrina was different because when the levees broke, the water literally just gushed into an area that was like a gully. So that was different. But generally speaking, hurricanes don't do that. Now, Tampa's different. And that area around Tampa where those bays are, think of it like a tub of water and the water's just rushing in on one side so it fills it up really fast. Well, people live there. That's, that's prime real estate, right? So it's super, super concentrated, very dense population. And the pictures I've seen tell me that if there were people in, if there were some people in some of those homes, especially elderly people or young kids, you know, um, there there probably is a, a chance that hundreds of people are dead. Scotty, well, a couple of things. One, you, you know, you talk about the water rushing. I don't know if you had a chance to see. Did you see the images of uh, Tampa Bay when all the water left? Yeah, goes I the mean, other way. It goes the other way. It, yeah. it goes out to the ocean before it comes rushing back in. So all that water that was in Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay is, you know, from a few feet. Look biblical. I think, you know, it, it looks crazy. It looked biblical. It was biblical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was it like was something Moses. you would literally see in a movie. So, 
And the speed, you know, I was watching on a MSNBC, I think they had Ali Belshi. He was like in an apartment complex somewhere. And you can literally see the water as the hours were going by, raising to the second level and, and then crashing. And then you saw the, the vans and the cars floating by. So, yeah, that uh, that part of it is just terrifying. And, and another point is you do you did mention that it's a big resort town, a lot of vacations. I vacationed that on that area, in that area before. It's also a big elderly area. There's a lot of yeah. retirement and older people that live in that. Like you said, the infrastructure there is older because they kept that historic. But there is a lot of senior citizen areas and communities and, and trailer parks and things of that nature. So, you know, when he I, says maybe a few hundred people, uh, it seems like a good guesstimate, I would say. Yeah, we'll see. Look, sometimes they can be oh, wrong. Not. And pe people always have a tendency to look at the damage and then base their predictions on damages. There is still a conspiracy that lives to this day that <laughs> thousands and thousands of people died. Look it up. Thousands and thousands of people died during Hurricane Andrew, but the government hid them. They put them on barges and took them out to sea so nobody would find out, which, right, like, and, and no one's going to say my aunt is missing, right? I mean, people are so stupid. We're just dolts. Sometimes I think we are the dumbest people in the history of the world with some of the stuff that we come up with. Uh, by the way, uh, kudos. Now, now that I've said one of the most negative things that's ever come out of my mouth, let me give you a positive. Kudos to the Weather Channel. They did a really good yeah. job, generally speaking, especially when they had their, uh, their scientists, you know, their really smart guys, explaining what the hurricane was doing, where it was, what it was going, where it was going to go. I mean, th that. in fact, I learned something watching this hurricane. The Weather Channel is now the most trusted source in the United States for information. Can you believe that? I mean, we've gone from, you know, newspapers to Walter Cronkite to cable news. And now all of those are a joke to most Americans. The only thing they trust is the Weather Channel. They don't trust CNN anymore. CNN used to be the most trusted, right? Yeah. Not even close yeah. anymore. Not even close. The numbers are, yeah, I looked yeah. at the numbers recently. They weren't even like, they used to be at 80% trust level. Today, they're like something under 50%. It's ridiculous. So now you it's the You know the, the moment channel. the Weather Channel mentions global warming or any kind of climate change, though, that goes right out the window, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, that's that's what, I mean, that's just the, politicis, the politicization of, of our country today. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, everything, everything is viewed through that political sphere, whether we, you know, want to admit it or not. The Weather Channel is great until they mention something that somebody doesn't agree with, and then that goes out. There is one thing that pissed me off about the coverage, and this was not during, this was before. And, and, and you know, I'm a big, I'm a journalist, right? This is who I am. Yeah. This is what I've done my whole life. And I think coverage of a story should involve context. And it should be fair and it should be honest. And if you know something, you don't report things as, uh, well, here, I'll give you an example. I always use this when I'm invited to colleges to speak to journalism students. I always tell them this. I say, um, if you are asked and you have to do a story about whether it's raining outside, right? You do not need to get a person who says, yes, it's raining. And another person who says, no, it's not raining. And then you have a debate between them and say, see, I covered both sides. Because not every story has two sides. Some story only has, some stories only have one side. For example, that journalist who decided to have a meteorologist on to say it's raining and another one to say it's not raining, you know what he could have done? He could have walked to the, he could have walked to the window. <laughs> <laughs> Look out the window. Is it raining? No, it's not. End of story. Next. I mean, God, sorry for yelling. Um, some stories you don't need to do that with, but they do that. And, and here's an example of what I'm talking about. We knew, we knew when these reports that you're about to hear are filed. I'm going to play this for you. This can make you mad. I hope it makes you mad. We knew the people doing these reports knew because of where they live and they're reporting from. We got all of these from um, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, television and stations, right? And, and they know because the National uh, Hurricane Center said Miami's out of the, out of the area of target, uh, the cone of uh, probability or whatever the hell they call it. There's no way that hurricane is coming here. No way. It's impossible. 
I mean, I, I, well, I guess it could go through the state of Florida, flip around, and then come back. But, right. but that's th- not in the cards. So they knew the hurricane was not coming here. We know that. You know that. You're a journalist. You know that. You look it up. Okay, the hurricane's going to Tampa. It's not coming to Miami. So now I'm working at a TV station in Miami. And I'm reporting on how people are reacting. But instead of sharing information, I just do this. Here, let's take a listen to this. Ian impacts, empty shelves and long lines. How South Florida spent the day preparing for the worst. South Floridians rushing to local stores to prepare for Tropical Storm Ian, but showing up to find empty shelves. As Tropical Storm Ian approaches, people are now rushing to get their hurricane supplies and also headed out this morning to gas up their cars. Some stores, in fact, are already experiencing some shortages. So take a look over my shoulder at the gas station of Costco here in Royal Palm Beach off of Southern Boulevard. A steady flow of cars really all morning. The gas station opening up the pumps two hours early today at 5 a.m. And if my photojournalist Jasmine can even pan off, earlier, about half an hour ago, it was a much noticeably longer line. The general mood that I got was it's better to be safe than sorry. And now is the time to stock up on supplies as places like this Costco ran out of water by six. Shoppers are trying to beat the last minute rush buying the supplies they need for a hurricane. That's not going to be anything, anything by Tuesday. That's not journalism. That's public relations for those stores. That's what they're doing. They're doing public relations work because their (laughs) job as a journalist is to say in that report, there is no reason for you to be rushing to the store to buy uh, a gallon of water because you're not going to need it. So here's our advice to you, or at least here's what experts are saying. The storm is not coming to South Florida. So why are you rushing to buy water and toilet paper? Why? And, and, and this is part of journalism. What, what, use your knowledge, create context, and share it. But these sons of bitches could give a crap. In fact, it looks to me like they were hired by Home Depot and hired by these stores to lie to people to get them to go in and buy stuff. I mean, I couldn't find one person who put the story in context while I was watching the news in South Florida. Not one who actually said, by the way, we should let you know there's no reason to go there because the hurricane's not coming here. What the hell, man? That, you know what? That not, That's not just bad journalism, Scotty. That's dishonest. Not, not only is it dishonest, it's straight up lying because those clips were all pulled from the 23rd of September and the 24th of September. The storm officially hit South Florida on the 28th. When those clips were pulled, all the spaghetti you mean, you mean, strip you mean bottles. Hit, you mean to hit West Florida? Yeah, when it hit West Florida, yeah, I'm sorry. Right. All the spaghetti string models, all, all, all the European models at that point, when those clips were pulled from, had shown it was hitting the West Coast and not the East Coast. Right, right. So, yeah, you're right. So on, on Monday, when I had to go do my normal food shopping that I normally do on Mondays, I had to get this crap for water. What is it, alkaline water? I mean, this is all that was left on the shelf. I drink water in my house just normally, bottles of water. So this is what I'm stuck with. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, they're creating and the cons- cans were gone, paper products were gone. I don't, which I still don't. What are you going to do? Dry up? Actually, maybe Trump was right. You know, yeah. when he threw those paper towels. <laughs> we, we, the point is, we've gotten to a point in this country, as far as journalism is concerned, where it almost seems to the to me that these journalists feel the pressure, if not behooved to. Ooh, that was fun. Behooved, uh, behooved to. To, to, to tell the story from a commercial standpoint rather than from a journalistic standpoint. Like they're working for those yeah. stores. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're hoping yeah. those stores will now buy an ad on, I, you know, Channel 6 I feel 6 like that's what Miami they feel like they're something. supposed to say. What's that? It feels like that's what they, it, it seems like they feel like that's how they're supposed to right. report. Right. It. Just like, like Rachel Maddow feels the urge and the compunction to report that Putin is Hitler and that we need to invade uh uh, Russia and start World War III because she feels the commercial need to do that because she's constantly kissing the ass of all the State Department people and all the Pentagon people. And by the way, who's the biggest sponsor of CNN and NBC and, uh, right. and you know, all these networks out there, uh, Fox, those big giant corporations, big giant corporations who make bombs and make money off of uh, wars. 
So they treat these wars as just the, the same thing that these young local reporters, this, these are like reporters in training. Right now they're working for Home Depot right. covering a hurricane. But if they get promoted and they go to CNN or MSNBC, <laughs> then they get to not do Home Depot, they get to do Raytheon you know, and scare the hell out of Americans into starting wars in places like Iraq, where we have no fucking business being. So th 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 let me just say, call it what it is. It's crap. That's not journalism. They're not giving you context. They're not giving you the real story, whether it's they're covering a hurricane or they're covering a war in Iraq, which, by the way, here's another point. And then maybe I'll get off my soapbox. For 20 years, we were at war in Afghanistan. You could barely once find. And by the way, 20 years in Afghanistan, you want to do some numbers? 20 years in Afghanistan makes it the longest war, not just the longest war in the history of the United States. I'm going to, I'm going to have you do this. I'm going to, I want you to take the revolutionary war. I want you to add the uh, civil war. I want you to take the uh, Vietnam war and World War II and World War I, add them all up. You still don't have 20 years. The war in Afghanistan lasted 20 years. That's longer than all of those wars combined. Oh, and by the way, the coverage was minimal. For, for the first year and a half, lots of coverage. Then after that, nothing. Essentially, we'd hear about it once in a while, buried at the end of a newscast. And then all of a sudden, when we get out, because a couple of people may have died on a tarmac somewhere, it's the front page story every day. So being there needlessly was not a story. Getting out, yeah, that was a calamity. That tells you a lot about our uh, about our news media, Scotty Metnick. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it seems like it wasn't in the news every day because they didn't want people knowing the truth or the realization that we were there. For, that we shouldn't have been there because nothing was going on. No we reason. accomplished nothing with that war. It was a disaster. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I was in the military uh, in 2002. Uh and I'll never forget what a Marine told me. I was on an LHD carrier, a USS Baton, and we were heading out there and we had just picked up the Marines that we were taking out there. And I said, man, I can't believe this. We're going, you know, we're going to get terrorists. And we're going to go catch the bad guys. And he says, we're going to protect oil fields, man. We're going to protect oil fields. And it was at that moment at 18 years old that everything that I thought I knew about our country and, and what I felt about our country, the patriotism, all that other BS that we have, which I, I'm happy, I'm proud to be an American. Don't get me wrong. But of course yeah. I had a realization there where I had somebody that was literally trained to kill and protect the United States. And he was going to protect oil fields. And, you know, that's why they didn't put it in the news. They didn't want that to be front page fodder. They didn't want it to yeah. be there. You know, it was all about weapons of mass destruction you're and stopping not, terrorism. Yeah. And, and you're not going to hear that from him, Rachel Maddow or, uh, no. or, or Don Lemon no. or uh, Chris, whatever the hell his name is, or Sean Hannity or name your uh, poison when it comes to that. By the way, speaking of news, uh, something there's a bizarre story out there, and I don't want to get too engulfed in this thing, but there is a bizarre story going out there right now. Have you guys heard about this? So apparently it's been determined that during the riots and the people who tried to, no, not tried to, but broke into the U.S. Capitol, while that was going on, somebody inside the White House made a phone call to one of the rioters. Weird, huh? Like, why would somebody in the White House call a rioter? And, and they knew it had happened, but was it really a rioter? You know, what the hell was going on? Well, now I guess we're, we're getting a little closer to what actually happened because we now know who received the call. In fact, here's the uh, report. I think this is ABC. Tonight, we're learning new details about this man, 26-year-old Anton Lunick of Brooklyn, seen here on January 6th. Turns out he was the man who allegedly received a call via the White House switchboard on the day of the attack. The news of such a call was revealed Sunday night on 60 Minutes by former January 6th committee investigator Denver wow, Riggleman. Happening. That's a big, pretty big aha moment. You get an aha Wait a minute. Someone in the White House was calling one of the rioters while the riot was going on? On January 6th. Absolutely. So who called Anton Lunatic? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to go there. Lunik, huh? Anton. It fits. It fits. <laughs> he's one of your people. He's a dude from Jersey, right? Is he a New Yorker? I think he's bro yeah, he's Brooklyn. My family's from Brooklyn. Same so thing. yeah, we're from the same mother country there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is weird. Um, why would somebody in the quite now I to be fair, 
to be fair, because I like to give shit to both sides. The story's getting a lot of play because the left, the media on the progressive side, as opposed to the conservative side, thinks this is a great spooky mystery. And what they really want to say is this guy got called by Donald Trump or one of Donald Trump's minions. And can you believe a president of the United States calling a guy who's attacking the Capitol while he's attacking the Capitol? That, that's, that's, that's not what the story is, but that's what they want the story to be. And that's why they're overhyping it and overreporting it, at least as far as I'm concerned. By the way, I'm not saying it's not an interesting story. What I'm saying is there's no there there yet to dry well. Somebody got a call. It could have been a, it, 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 you know, it could have been a, a misdial. It could have been a million things. Yeah. So before we get all high and mighty and trying to, you know, you know, start the uh, next impeachment of Trump. Oh, wait, he's not a president. Um, back. Let's, I think we should back off on this one a little bit. I don't know. That's how I see it, Scotty. What do you think? Yeah, I've definitely seen not just the media, but I've seen the the progressive fodder on Twitter and the accusations made against this guy, whether he's a foreign agent you know, because he has a Russian-sounding name. Lunatic? Or, you know, I've Who? Lunatic? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've literally seen What's people it? saying this. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. I don't think it's true. <laughs> but he's a 26, 27-year-old guy. Yeah. Okay? So what would the president be calling a 26, 27-year-old guy who lives in Brooklyn as, I think, an insurance agent? And he's a nine-second call. Can I, give a pro can I give a possible explanation what I see is probable? Sure. Like, real? Maybe one of his family members works in the White House as an aide and said, crap, I really hope Anton's not down there. Let me call him, make sure he's get if he's there, he gets the hell out of there. And that's I, that seems like a plausible explanation. I can't see any reason why Donald Trump or any of his cabinet members would call this guy, especially on a nine second call. Yeah. You know, sounds to me like at best nobody picked up. By the way, yeah. I mean, there's a riot going on. It's not like you can even hear a phone ring. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, right. Well, now the interesting thing is he did plead guilty and he did get, I believe it was something like a, a two months house arrest and a year probation. But from what I'm reading and understanding, none of this was mentioned in the plea agreement. Yeah. So now is that considered perjury potentially? Is he going to get no, into more trouble? He, no, no, no. You don't have to incriminate yourself. No. Wrong. Oh, no? No, of course not. It's not okay, your job so to tell. It's not, it's not your, was... it's in the United States, at least so far, in China maybe, but in the United <laughs> States, if you have information about yourself, it's not your, your responsibility to report on yourself. Got so, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You, can, you, you have a, the right of self-incrimination. So if they didn't bring it up, he shouldn't, he did mm. not have to talk about it. He may, by the way, he, he, there's a good chance he didn't even know this happened. He didn't know what yeah. the hell that no, phone call was or where it came from. So, you know. Yeah. He doesn't know what the switchboard number is for the White House, or maybe he does, and he is a spy. Yeah. Who the hell knows? Yeah. My point is, it's a we don't know, so it's let's back dial. off. That's all. My point is, we don't know, so let's back right. off. That's all. Yes, that you I know? agree. Boy, there's something else going on today that is just one of the most fascinating. And here's another one that makes me a little perturbed about what the NFL is getting away with. And as you guys know, I am a huge football fan. Uh, maybe more specifically, a huge Miami Dolphins fan. I played college football. I played, you know, Optimus football. I played uh, high school football. It was one of the greatest things that happened in my life. I'm a poor immigrant. My parents never had. I grew up in poverty, but somehow because I played football, I was able to get a scholarship, go to school. Football's important to me. And, um, you know, it's a part of who I am. So, yeah, I sit around with my family oftentimes and we watch football. And I was recently watching a Miami Dolphins game and I saw what seemed to me was a pretty serious head injury to one of the players. And he happened to be one of the most players, one of the most important players in the NFL, a kid who was people were wondering whether he was going to be any good. And this year it appears he's going to be really good. He's going to be a hell of a quarterback and his team is undefeated. He's the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins to uh, Tangaloa. I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but who cares? Nobody else pronounces it correctly anyway. So we'll just call him Tua. This weekend he is playing and uh, he gets sacked. Uh, actually, he didn't. He made the throw. Let me correct that. He made the throw, but he gets hit. And this is not a football segment, so who cares, right? But he goes to the ground and you see the back of his head bounce off the turf. And nowadays, those stadiums, the ground is really hard, which is a problem in and of itself, by the way. And then he tries to get up. Listen to how it's described. And two, oh, he's woozy. 
Personal foul. Roughing the passer. Defense number 58. 15-yard penalty. First down. Matt Milano. I mean, it's hard to watch. Have you, have you ever watched a boxing match where a boxer gets hit and, and you watch his knees like crumble? Like he can't stand up and now he's going to the ground and you see the face and the eyes roll back. And then some, he tries to hold himself up, but he can't. And then he goes down again and then he goes a third time. Well, that's what this was. It was so obvious. It was so obvious that he was suffering uh, some kind of, uh, well, it's called a concussion. It's called a concussion, right? And this is a big deal because the NFL has made a pledge, right? Because of a lot of things that they would no longer allow anything. And they have a little thing called a concussion protocol now in the NFL where they say, if you have a concussion and it's obvious, we're going to take you out of the game. You don't get back in until you pass concussion protocols. And you you might not even be able to play for the next game or the next game. You're certainly not going to be able to play a couple days later. Well, in the case of Tua... I told my wife and my kids while we were watching the game, I said, he's done. There's no way they can put him back in the game. Well, three plays, three plays later, he's back in the game. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? And now they're playing again tonight on a Thursday, no less, which means there's very little time to recuperate. And they're playing him. They just made the announcement that Tua's going to be playing. Now we're recording this a little early. So, uh, you know, this this will be you guys will hear this after the game. But still, maybe there's a chance they won't play him. But right now they're saying that they're going to play him. I, I want to bring in two guests, uh, Bob Fitzsimmons. He's an attorney, founding member of the uh, Brain Injury Research Institute, profoundly has studied this topic, written about it, covered cases, represented clients. One of the most famous people in the United States when it comes to uh, concussions with professional athletes. And then also Chris Nowinski, Dr. Chris Nowinski, former college football player, former pro wrestler turned neuroscientists, and he's the CEO of the uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation. Gentlemen, thanks so much uh, uh, for joining us. Um, uh, Chris, maybe I start with you. Is it okay if I call you Chris, by the way, or do you want me to say doctor? No, Chris is fine. Okay. Um, you watched the video of Tua. Concussion? Yes. Yes. He showed all the signs of concussion. And, uh, you know, it's multiple. You know, he wobbled twice. He shook his head, which you only do when there's a concussion. He grabbed his head when he fell. So I agree. I thought there was no chance they'd put him back in. And I didn't think there was any chance that they would try to create a cover story of this back injury when he never grabbed his back. <laughs> it looked like his back hurt at all. And it's an unverifiable injury. So it looks, you know, it feels like they're trying to maybe pull one over on us because there's no x-ray or image. They'll say he tweaked his back. And then with this, maybe the saddest part is that he cleared him for today. Rob, they, they are. Yeah, go ahead. Bob, I'm just wondering, you know, we, we would think the eyes of the world are on it. It's on national television. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the NFL the that we should, we should be able to trust them to do the right thing. I mean, I, I, you, listen, I, I, I only know what my eyes showed me. But I think they're bullshitting us, man. It's it's bizarre. You see that picture. It's classic uh, concussion symptoms, and and for them to 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 try to dodge it and to try to push it back on a back injury is just that they've lost additional credibility that they've lost many times in the past. So for whatever reason, you know, they're just driven to to get these kids to play. This is a 24 year old kid that wants to get on the field and wants to play. He wants to be out there. He wants to be a star. Everybody wants to do that but we have to err on the side of safety. And, and that's what the NFL was supposed to do years ago. When yeah. Chris, back in the days when we, it was all err on the side of safety. There's no reason to pass judgment to let a kid play if there's a question. And if there's not a question raised in that film, then none of us, the people on this, on this uh, podcast, Rick and uh, Chris and myself, or anybody else that's ever done this, that kid got dinged, man. He got, he got hit. Yeah. And, uh, the, yeah, and, 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 and the answer they're giving us, I'm reading it right here on ESPN, is the Dolphins say they asked Tua and he, and he said he's fine and he wants to play. So yeah. the player, uh, yeah. Chris, the, the player is the ultimate arbiter in this thing? <laughs> is is yeah, that the way we're going to do it, it? It's like we've learned nothing about brain injuries, you know, over the last 20 years and what this can do to people. So, you know, not only 
that he almost certainly have a concussion and, and somebody chose to believe his self-report story of it was just my back, which we know we can't always believe players. They're terrible at judging whether or not they've had a concussion and he may not worry about his long-term effects, but at least the team should be worried about those long-term effects and somebody getting two concussions in five days. If he got hit again in the head tonight, that can be career ending. And we're talking about a young, hugely promising player, a game early in the season. It does not matter if they win or lose. So it's, it's preposterous. And and so I mean, it's just that the idea he's playing today is so profoundly stupid. As a as a as a Dolphins fan, you should be pissed off. Yeah, that they are that they if they put him on the field and roll the dice with his future. I mean, two concussions actually what ended my career with WWE. Like I learned the hard way. I had a headache for 15 years, and I've never been the same person because of two concussions in a month, two concussions in five days. Um, you know, we should all, if he, if if for some idiotic reason, he goes on that field tonight, we should, you know, pray for him because it could be the last time you see him. Why is that? I've heard that said, please explain to me what's the difference between having one concussion and resting for a month or having two concussions. Like you say, if he has one today, that's see Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four and a half days, two concussions. You say that could be extremely critical if it could be catastrophic i mean you can actually why why explain it to me so you can die from second impact syndrome so about five or ten athletes a year die because they've returned to play we don't exactly know why it happens every time but basically uh, uh, your brain can swell rapidly from that second hit i know people who've died i know people who've survived it you don't you know surviving it can be worse than dying from it sometimes but the the reason why you need a potentially everybody needs a month to return to normal is because so many things happen with a concussion. Basically, there's what's it's called the neurometabolic cascade of concussion. You get all sorts of neurotransmitter chemical changes in your brain, all sorts of metabolic changes in your brain, changes in blood flow. Um, and basically, the reason you see symptoms is because your brain is now malfunctioning, but it literally takes days or weeks to get put back together. You might feel fine after four or five days and think you're okay, but if we use more advanced tests, we'll show, we'll, we could prove to an athlete they're not back to normal. So the idea that we're still using I feel okay uh, five days after concussion, like, it just shouldn't be happening. But, Bob, we're told they've got this little, uh, like, camper now that they put on the sideline, and we see the players going in there, yeah. which, by the way, when you do something in the dark, I always wonder whether <laughs> you're doing it. But it looks great. It's like, oh, and the announcers say, and now they're going to take him into the uh, the closed module to <laughs> see if he's okay. And then you see the player comes out, and sometimes he goes into the locker room because he's got a broken ankle or something. Other times he comes right on out. What's what? What's going on in that little uh, in that little now, module or whatever the hell that is? Supposed to be people qualified in there. It's not supposed to be a free pass where you get back into the game. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in there to evaluate people. And and we're supposed to have qualified. We have phenomenal doctors out there that are qualified to evaluate these these types of folks. And huh. and they're supposed to be on the sidelines and they're supposed to be qualified. And uh, it, it just it obviously just isn't didn't happen here. And uh, for whatever reason, um, that's that's wrong. And like Chris said, you're, when you have an injured brain already and then you, you put another injury on it, it compounds the, the damage that's done to the brain. And it it can be it can be lethal. Actually. Well, there, there's one example of this. Now we start talking a little bit about CTE, something you guys certainly know a lot about. Um, Junior Seau is the name that comes to mind. A vicious hitter, probably made thousands upon thousands of tackle, head-to-head, helmet-to-helmet tackles because he said, that's the way I do it. That's the way it has to be done. You have to sacrifice your skull when you you tackle people. This is the way he was taught to do it when he was a little leaguer. He did it in high school. He did it in junior high school. He did it in college. And he did it in the NFL. And then this. And NFL warrior, Junior Seau, who over a 20-year career made an estimated 1,850 bruising tackles, most of them head first. Junior Seau! He'd come home and just hit the blackout button in the bedroom and black the room out so he could just lay down. And today in medical documents obtained by ABC News and ESPN and confirmed in an exclusive interview with Seau's family, we learned for the first time that this monster of the middle who killed himself last year, suffered severe brain damage from repeated blows to the head. 
Seau's family donated his brain to science. The National Institutes of Health found evidence of shrunken and hardened brain cells like these, telltale signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He literally shot himself in the chest to protect his brain because he wanted the world to know what had happened to his brain. Chris, pick it up from there. Yeah, CTE is actually, it's a distinct problem from what we're talking about with Tua, but it's a horrible problem. And, and it's important to tell people, concussions themselves in the absence of other hits to the head have never been shown to cause CTE. But if you hit someone in the head 10,000 times, even if they haven't had a concussion, your brain can degenerate over time. And most NFL players who've ever been studied have had their, have been found to have this disease. So to, we don't know if return to play inappropriately makes it worse. In theory, it could cause more brain damage, but uh, we, we sort of have to attack the, both of these problems. we got to be more responsible about concussions, and then we have to stop hitting athletes in the head so many times. The NFL Players Association is starting to fight back. We don't hit in practice so much other things, but the reality is unless we change hitting, especially in practice throughout the whole football ecosystem, we are still going to find football players with CT going forward forever, especially because they're now bigger, stronger, and faster than they've ever been before. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, Bob, you played some football. Chris, you played football. I played football. I, I played from since I was uh, 11 years old. Uh, bull in the ring, you know, hamburger drill. Yeah. Literally two guys crashing in a circle, hitting their heads as hard as they can. Coaches always told me, you hit with the crown right here. You, you, you do everything. I can only imagine how many times as a high school football player, I, I, I was knocked out. I used to run back punts. You know, I just think to myself, me, you guys, who knows, right? And at some point, this stuff reaches critical mass. <clears throat> the good news is the NFL is finally now saying, and so is college football doing something about that. But I don't know what's going on in practices. Can we trust them? What do you think, Bob? Well, I think a lot of the injuries actually occurred during the practices. At least that's what the statistics have, have indicated. Hmm. Uh, because people aren't watching over it. You don't have the crowds. You don't have the... Uh, the circumspection. That, so it's that up to the coach, right? The I mean, if he's it's a good, if he's That's a right, good, yeah. decent, responsible, ethical human being, he's going to make sure his athletes are not going through this. But if he's not, right. and he wants to win, and he's making ten million dollars, right? <laughs> so uh, you you gave a plug to college football earlier, and I would say no, college football is behaving terribly on this issue. So right now, basically twenty percent of concussions are happening in practice at the NFL level. In the college level, they studied six teams with sensors uh, and had medical teams at every practice. 70% of the concussions were happening in practice. Two-thirds of every head impact were having practice. And that's 10 years after the NFL made that change. College, I, I have found, in my experience, college coaches are far more scared of losing one game more a season and getting fired than relearning how to teach football without hitting their players in the head. And so right now I would be scared to death if my kid was going to a college football program where that coach isn't very visibly and publicly saying we don't hit in practice. Uh, and, I, and I'm coming from this uh, I, on Monday. I traveled out to see uh, uh, the widow of one of my former teammates who we diagnosed with CT when he died at 45. So this is very, uh, very, very top of mind right now. And I'm very frustrated with the response from the football community. I've heard, and I know, Bob, you've had uh, clients who suffered this i've heard horrible stories from friends of mine who know people who experience this they say men in their 40s suddenly can't remember their names they don't recognize their wives it's almost like a 90 year old alzheimer's patient it, what is it their brain just kind of turns to jelly i mean what is this like it's it's, it's bizarre behavior that, that you just they just change. They, they aren't a person almost anymore. They can't concentrate. They, they have anger fits. They, they can't socialize with other people. And, and Chris and I know you, and Chris and I haven't talked in a while. We, Chris and I formerly worked together in the past, but Sounds some of the calls you get at 11 or 12 o'clock at night from some, just some strange guy that's played in the NFL or, you know, had a college career and stuff that's having problems. It's um, it, it's, it's, it just blows your mind sometimes. And just you hear these kids that they're crying. These are grown people, men whose lives have just been ruined and they can't control themselves. And they're just looking for 
for an answer. And there really is no great answer right now other than prevention. You know, we still are on the prevention and hmm. there's a lot of people looking for things to treat and things like that to diagnose. And, but those are still in the, in the experimental stages right now. So I know there was a, I, I know there was a settlement. Has this, has the NFL done its part or is there much yet to be <laughs> no, done? No, my heavens. No, my, that, that settlement, I'm not going to, I can't comment on it. I'm not permitted to, but no, the NFL has not done their part. They are starting to take the head out of the game. I think they're they're flagging more people for you know head head to head contact, and I think they're they're trying to work that out. But uh, there's so much more that they could be doing at this point with the with these guys. Yeah, and let me to add what you said, Bob. Um, I was just relaying the story by my old teammate to someone at lunch today, and they literally said, oh, "God, that sounds just like Mike Webster." You know, you did the amazing job. The Webster family sharing just how awful it was for him when he would stun gun himself to sleep and glue his teeth back in, was couldn't take care of himself and you know, sleeping yeah. in his car. And uh, it it's also a reminder that it's not just really the men that hmm. suffer. One thing that has to be communicated, especially to the players themselves, is it's you know if you go off and you know fall apart and die, that's that's you know another dead guy. But what these guys do to their family in many of these situations and the scars they leave on their children who are grow up in these homes of fear and violence and substance abuse and whatever, like, like, and and if their father used to be a star, whether he was a star in college or a star in the pros, this is your hero. You used to people, you go, Oh my God, you're, 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 you're Mike Webster's son. Wow. You're Mike Webster's daughter. And all of a sudden Mike Webster turns into this thing we saw in that documentary and you go, Oh my God, poor guy. And that's your dad. That must be horrible. Family. Oh, Rick, the family gets affected by this because you watch this. Here's your breadwinner. Here's the guy that's your hero. Like you just said, and, and everything just crashes and, and it, it doesn't end after they pass away either. Let me tell you that yeah. residual injury to the families, it's forever. It's uh it's permanent injury. Yeah, the, these are these are the experiences, these are the lessons that we've learned. That's why we bring this up. That's why watching this Tua situation makes us all makes me, and I'm sure many others like me, shake my head and I'm going, What are you guys doing? You're gonna put him back on the field four and a half days? After everybody who can see five fingers in front of their faces, my mom says, can see that he had a concussion. Come on, man. Come on. Just, I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your expertise. You obviously know a lot more about this than most people do. And it's good to have uh, your uh, experience shared with us on this, uh, during this conversation. Thank you once again. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having us, Rick. Nice seeing you again, Chris. Good to see you, Bob. Okay. So that's what we do. It's called uh, Rick Sanchez News. Share it with your friends because this is where we tell truths. And uh, I think that's important. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're wherever you get your podcast. And do me a favor. Share it. Share it with somebody so that they, too, can experience what we're doing. And they, too, can tell me. You're horrible, or I like it. <laughs> Either way, I'll take it. Uh, by the way, if you happen to be uh, watching us on uh, YouTube, subscribe. Dale, andale, y vamos con todo. Agua. 